The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. Today on The Horse Race, Anthony Amore scored Governor Charlie Baker's first statewide endorsement this year in his run for state auditor, plus a new survey on why employees are leaving their jobs in record numbers. It's Thursday, March 31st. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Lisa Kaczynski, here with Steve Kazella and Jennifer Smith. So first, let's start with a quick stress level check. I read online that we are all not stressed. It says so right there. There was a study done, and we in Massachusetts are tied for second to last, or among the least stressed states, according to this very scientific survey, or study, I should say, that was done. Jen, how's your stress level? <laughs> it, it's not ideal, because, okay, here's my take. You cannot trust a stress poll that has a 0% response rate from horse race co-hosts. We are very stressed, and it should be accounted for. And also, frankly, I want to know who they asked, because in my experience, Massachusetts is way more stressed than other states, and we've earned the right to be recognized as such. I mean, what do you think, Steve? Is this a poll that filled you with stress even just looking at it? <laughs> it did a little bit. But I, I, I should correct myself. We're actually 43rd, the 43rd most stressed. So we're actually not second. Oh, OK. So maybe I don't know. Maybe that adds something. The most stressed is actually or the least stressed is actually Utah. So, Jen, maybe you've got something <laughs> to say there as well. Yeah, I was just in Utah. And I don't think that I'm maybe the determining factor in whether or not a state is stressed. But I don't think we should ignore the possibility that as soon as I'm in one state or the other, the stress level just rockets up. And that is why Massachusetts is slightly above Utah at this very moment, because I'm here. Look, I think at this point, and someone said this online, and I can't remember quite who it is. But this stress is just part of our ethos. It's part of our existence. That's how ingrained it is in us. I mean, think of it this way. I, you know, you all know that I'm not from Massachusetts, though I've been here for a decade. But every time I go home to New York, and I'm driving in a car, and Jen's already laughing at this story. And there's a yellow light. I speed up. I don't slow down. Everyone else slows down. But I, I speed up because I'm from Massachusetts now. And, you know, my and I'm telling people like, oh, you're driving too slowly. My parents are like, you have the worst road rage that anyone has ever seen that we have ever seen in our lives. But it's not road rage. It's just these are everyone else is driving incorrectly. I'm calm. I just need people to get out of my way. So I'm I'm going to lean with team like this is so ingrained that it won't show up in a survey anymore. Because how do you measure something that's just part of who we are? Like it's relative stress. Like if our baseline level for stress in Massachusetts is already up at 11 and you ask people, hey, are you more stressed today than usual? And they say, well, you know, the Golden Dome hasn't fallen on my head this morning. So no, 
Of course, it's not going to show up as more stress than usual. Yeah, it's just like everyday life. Like, do I feel stressed? Nope, I feel normal. Like that, <laughs> which in any other state would be, well, okay, that's, you seem like you're pretty stressed. You know, you just cut that person off. You're driving like we do here in Massachusetts, just pretending that you can't see anybody else. So you're just going to go and <laughs> do what you need to do. Um, but the the study was done by WalletHub.com, the paragon of scientific research that they are, and included a whole bunch of different statistics on um, things like work-related stress, money-related stress, family, health and safety-related stress. And they got data from various surveys. They got data from the census, the CDC, child care aware of them, all, all different kinds of places. doesn't matter. Anyway, there's data from all over the place. However, they put it in their like cauldron and stirred it around to make some kind of magic brew. It came out saying, we in Massachusetts are not stressed. So congratulations, horse race listeners. What you are experiencing is calm and Zen. So even if you think it's stressed, you should just get used to it because this is what Zen feels like. I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> this is just the worst news of the so, day. So with that in mind, we have to move on from that. Although we should honestly just spend the whole episode on Do that. Do we though? <laughs> I have more things to say about stress levels. I could talk about stress all day. Come on. Maybe we need to de-stress. But we're already distressed. It says so right there on wallethub.com. I, for one, hope that listening to the podcast is a meditative experience for our listeners where they can just, you know, take it in, listen to us, get out all of the state's remaining three bits of rage, and then, you know, they can they can relax after that. I will say that sometimes my dad listens to our lovely podcast to help him fall asleep at night. <laughs> so there is scientific data that shows that listening to this podcast and others and others, he it's just his routine, will help put you to sleep. So take that. No, no, it's okay. You can let your dad drag us. It's fine. It's fair. We should just insert like a smooth jazz break between segments for this <laughs> for this episode just to like help people reduce their stress level. Smooth jazz bugles. Anyway... What are we doing here today, other than being outraged about how unstressed we are? Yes, well, aside from our kind of conversational chaos, we are catching up in maybe a more orderly fashion with Anthony Amore, who is a Republican candidate for state auditor. And then with all of the questions surrounding the future of the workforce in Massachusetts, we're breaking down a new survey on why so many people left their jobs last year. So, shall we? We ride at dawn. I feel like it's not going to help our stress levels if we're riding out at dawn. We should be riding out during a normal hour when it's slightly lighter outside because it's really dark in the morning now. (laughs) Governor Baker earlier this month rolled out a $50 million workforce development program aimed at meeting employers' training needs and filling the 200,000 open jobs in the state. But whether Baker's Hire Now program succeeds hinges on the jobs available being appealing to potential workers. So why did so many people leave their jobs last year? And what do employers need to fill those jobs? To break down a new poll on the topic, we're joined by a very special guest, Libby Gormley. Of course, you know her as producer of the horse race, but because she's never had a horse race title before, we're giving her the role of vice president of employment statistics. Libby, welcome to the horse race. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. What an <laughs> impressive title. <laughs> we, I mean, we, considering that we have Supreme Commanders and, you know, Lifetime yeah, Achievement actually, Awards. Yeah, you know what? I take like, that back. <laughs> <laughs> felt like the least we could do. Um, anyway, so we hear about it all the time. We hear about the great resignation, the great quit, whatever you want to call it. 
But break it down. What do the numbers actually look like in terms of the worker shortage here in Massachusetts? Yeah, so starting just nationwide, just to get some context here, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is out with their monthly jobs report this week, and it shows that, as you said, the Great Resignation is continuing. It's something that started in the midst of the pandemic, and it's still going strong. 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs this month. Um, But sort of scaling down into Massachusetts, we see that unemployment in the state was 4.7% in February. And just to sort of compare that to pre-pandemic days, um, in February of 2020, unemployment was just 2.9%. So a little bit of an uptick there. And then um, just looking sort of at the past year as a whole, this great resignation is is really significant. Um, We look at uh, out of the 75.3 million workers that were hired last year, 68.9 million of them quit, were laid off or discharged. And then out of those 68.9 million, 47.4 million were voluntary quits. So it's a big problem and it's uh, nationwide and here in Massachusetts. So let's get into why those people are voluntarily quitting their job. What do the numbers look like saying the reasons people were leaving? Yeah, so this is coming from a Pew Research Center poll from just a couple weeks ago. And the first, uh, the, the biggest reasons are sort of ones that you would probably expect, pay being too low, no opportunities for inva- for advancement. Those both exist as the top two reasons with 63% support coming for both of those. But then something that, you know, you might not expect so much is that the next biggest reason with 57% of people saying is that they felt disrespected at work. Um, And then after that, you know, this is an issue that has taken a lot of national attention and has sort of really come to light in the pandemic due to schools being closed, remote schooling becoming sort of the norm, um, at least for, you know, uh, much of 2021. And that reason is because of child care issues um, going down the line. So the child care issues, uh, 48% of people said that was a reason. 45% of people said not enough flexibility to choose when to put in hours. 43% of people said because benefits weren't good. Um, there are more reasons that you can check out. We'll put a link in the show notes. But those are kind of the biggest uh, reasons that people were, were leaving their jobs. So when you're looking at the various reasons that people were listing for why they would be leaving a job. Um, Are you breaking this in your head into things that are obviously pandemic related versus might have been issues in previous years? Yeah, definitely. So of course, when you're seeing things like pay being too low and no opportunities for advancements, that's going to be an issue regardless of whether there is a pandemic happening. Um, Same could be said about felt disrespected at work, but the uh, definitely the childcare issues being a, a, a huge sort of, um, phenomenon happening because of the pandemic. And then also the flexibility thing. I mean, we're definitely seeing that at least with workers who can work from home, flexibility is all of a sudden this great option that they have. Um, And so if that's not an option for people who may have gotten used to that during the pandemic or for people who maybe never got it, but it's something that's now on their mind and now an option for so many people, obviously, you know, that's going to be front and center for a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting in this, you know, kind of scrolling down the list of reasons that the thing that dominated the headlines so much, which was people leaving because their employers are going to require them to get vaccinated against COVID, that was the last on the list. That was only 18% of people saying that that's the reason why they left their job. That kind of surprises me. Does it surprise you guys? 
Well, it was interesting that it was the the bottom of the chart. You know, it's the th- it's the thing probably that generated the most ink. I think just because it's politically divisive and kind of makes for easy headlines and so forth. Um, but it, you know, looking and seeing it down there below, kind of the more. I don't know what the word is, but pedestrian reasons, like normal reasons that you might quit a job. You know, it seems like those reasons happened in higher frequency maybe this year than usual. But, um, you know, they were all more important or more common than, you know, a COVID vaccine requirement. Yeah, Lisa, you make a good point, because for all of the media attention that it got, at least on this list, it's the it got the least amount of um Respondents citing it as the as their either minor or major reason for leaving. So 18 percent of people said that their employer requiring a COVID-19 vaccine was either a minor or major reason for them leaving. Um, And that's, you know, not insignificant, but certainly the lowest on this list. Um, And then if you look at the the, uh, education breakdown as well. For uh, folks with some college or less, 21% of people cited that as, as a reason. But for folks with at least a bachelor's degree, if not more, only 8% of people cited that as their reason for leaving. So really not, you know, not as uh, heavy hitting as the media sort of made it out to be. Well, because it does sort of imply a few different things that this could mean, for instance, which is either you might not be happy about needing to get a vaccine, but it's still easy to do and cheap to do. So there are people saying, you know, I'd rather keep the job and get the vaccine. So it's obviously not a reason to quit. Or you might end up with a situation of people saying, well, I have access problems. I've got, you know, everything from kind of anti-vax attitudes toward kind of skepticism toward government mandates, all of those kind of factors. So it is interesting to see that overall, this is kind of bottom of the list of why people left, but it doesn't actually account for maybe uh, the folks who were not happy about it, but still were able to make that decision. So it's easier, for instance, maybe to get a vaccine, I would argue, it's easier definitely to get a vaccine than to, you know, negotiate additional flexibility in work hours, for instance. Right, yeah, this doesn't mean that, you know, only 18% of people weren't happy about getting a, a vaccine. It just meant 18% of people were unhappy enough to leave their job as a result. So then let's talk about how the people who did leave their job are doing at this point, because Pew also dug in some detail into, okay, well, you left your job at some point in that year. What's happened since, you know, in terms of pay, in terms of work-life balance? How are people who left their jobs doing at this point? Yeah, I would say those numbers are are, are encouraging. Um, so a majority of those who quit a job in 2021 and are not retired say that they are now employed either full-time or part-time. So for full-time folks, that's 55%, part-time 23%. And then of those, 61% say that it was at least somewhat easy for them to find their current job. Um, 33% say it was very easy. And for the most part, the workers who quit their job last year are employed somewhere where they see their current situation as a step up, as an improvement from where they were prior. Um, So at least half of these workers say that compared to their last job, they're now earning more money. So that's 56% of people and have more opportunities for advancement. That's 53% of folks. Um, And then when it comes to sort of balancing that work-life 
uh, struggle that we all have balancing work and family responsibilities. 53% of people say that they have an easier time of that. And 50% of people say they have more flexibility to choose when they put in their work hours. So some really significant, you know, improvements there. One thing I do want to point out is the um, unsurprising sort of gender split among folks who say that balancing the work and family life uh, is is easier. Um so six in 10 men say their current job makes it easier for them to balance work and family. And that's higher than the share of women who say the same, that being at 48%. So, you know, kind of a, a, a an expected uh, difference there. But I think all in all, you know, it's, it's encouraging to see that people are able to find better opportunities for themselves. And if the pandemic had anything to do with that, then I would say that's a silver lining for a generally terrible event of all of our lives. Well, there is so much to dig in. We could be here all day. Uh, but as you mentioned, people can go poke through the actual survey itself and the results uh, in our show notes. But aside from that, Libby, and whatever your title is and you aspire for your title to be, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, guys. I'll just get back to uh, listening to the rest of this conversation and um, pointing out any flubs that you all have. <laughs> <laughs> Our next guest announced his campaign for state auditor, promising the courage to speak truth to power on Beacon Hill. Anthony Amore is the head of security for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and also a former candidate for state office. And he's also a former guest of this podcast. Anthony Amore, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So first and foremost, as we like to do, let's just start with the basics. Why are you running for state auditor? Well, um, as you might know, I, I have two daughters that I've raised here in Massachusetts. And actually, I'm now helping my partner to raise her eight-year-old. And I really do have a great understanding of how expensive it is to raise a family in Massachusetts. And I think now is a really important time to have a watchdog uh, to, to come in and make sure that taxes are paid, uh, taxes are spent efficiently and effectively and to provide um, uh, checks and balances to protect the taxpayer against spending sprees on Beacon Hill. I think that um, I can be an independent auditor, uh, a small eye independent. Um, I, I think it's really important that people understand that you know, when you start school and you learn about civics from the very beginning, you start to learn about checks and balances and having those on Beacon Hill are so important. I think that we're widely regarded as a one party state, despite the fact that we often have a uh, Republican in the corner office. And I can't think of a more important office to have someone provide checks and balances than the auditor. Not only is that the chief accountability uh, officer, um, so it's a natural fit. But also to have, I guess, what would be the opposition party in Massachusetts, keeping an eye on the majority party. Um, I, I know I can do it. I have the skills, the abilities, and the experience. I've spent more than 30 years as an investigator. I've done assessments and audits at the federal level and at private level. And I know that these are skills that are essential to uh, running the auditor's office. I've run large governmental organizations for extended periods of time. I've, uh, when I took over screening at Logan Airport, I had 1,200 federal employees. Um, and I ran a compliance and enforcement department, which did essentially what an auditor's office does uh, with a couple of dozen employees. And, and today for the last 16 years, I've had a large security department. I understand what it takes 
to run an organization, not just the vision for running it, but for handling the nuts and bolts of everyday work in government. And so, as you noted, there is uh, a a kind of partisan question often in Massachusetts. You're the lone Republican running. Uh, to what extent do you expect that would influence your work as auditor? One thing that came to mind is in your initial announcement, you had referenced uh, kind of protecting or looking after Charlie Baker's uh, accomplishments in office. So how do you envision that? Well, I, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it that way. Um, when I think about Charlie Baker and uh, and Karen Polito's accomplishments over the last eight years, I don't think the, think of them as Republican accomplishments. I think of them as good government accomplishments. I've said um, since I've announced that I'm not running to be the Republican auditor. I'm running to as a Republican for auditor. I want to be the taxpayer's auditor. I want to be the person there that represents the people. Um, so I don't see it as a partisan office. I, I have this vision of professionalism over politics, right? Where you're looking at the books uh, in a fair manner, but fearlessly at the same time too, and not going to be compelled to do a party's bidding, but to do the people's bidding and to, and to be an effective watchdog in that respect. You know, if I could add to that really quick. Yeah, sure. When I did this work for the federal government, um, it's the same sort of work. You're looking at government programs related to security and really in-depth and really important stuff. And I was a civil servant doing it. At no time did I or my staff by law uh, talk about politics on the job. That wasn't what we were there for. We were there to be good custodians of um, the public trust. And that's what I plan to do as auditor. You also mentioned a couple other specific priorities when in your launch announcement, you mentioned looking for waste on college campuses as a way to reduce student debt and making sure that if the state begins giving driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants, there's no fraud or abuse. Why those specific two? You know, there was a lot in your announcement, but why those, Why those? I guess, three things? We've already gone through one. Why, why those other two specifically? I'm glad you asked. You know, um, from a, a meta level, when I think about what the auditor does, I think it's it's very important that the auditor not focus on things that are near and dear to them, because that's the surest way that you'll miss other glaring problems. Um, but when I think about uh, my personal experiences and things that stand out to me, uh, those two came to mind. Um, number one, my daughter, my uh, younger daughter is a student at UMass Amherst. And when I walk around the campus, I'm impressed but I also notice a lot of new construction going on, these ongoing projects. And I wonder, um, are the tax dollars and the tuition dollars that are being spent on these projects being spent wisely? I know just from doing my own research that, you know, when the, when the state uh, builds a parking garage at UMass Boston, the parking spots uh, cost far more than they do when they go build one at Salem State. And I wanna know why. Uh, when you build a dorm uh, at UMass Boston, um, it costs a heck of a lot more than it does at, say, Bridgewater State. Why? Why are these things the case? And these things, I think, should be looked into. People, we, we hear from um, both sides of the aisle, rightfully so, that college graduates and you know ongoing students, current students, are being faced with a mountain of debt. Uh, there's not much the auditor can do about the existing debt. But there is something the auditor can do to make sure that every penny that's being spent in tuition and in tax dollars is being spent 
wisely and efficiently and um, uh, the way that the taxpayer would hope. Moving on to immigration, I, I just happen to have a lot of personal experience in immigration. I began my professional career uh, with the federal government uh, in the in what used to be called the Immigration and Naturalization Service. I think you and I, Steve, probably the only ones that are old enough to remember that. But um, when I did that, I worked with, uh, you know, coincidentally, I, I remember doing that job and having um, refugees from the Bosnian War coming into the United States and processing these refugees and meeting them. So I really understand um, the, 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 the issues that refugees from the current uh, war in, in the Ukraine face coming here. I understand the fears of those people. <clears throat> and I'm a big proponent of our refugee and asylum system. But I also know the nuts and bolts of the immigration system. And when I read the outline of how licenses would go to um, uh, undocumented uh, people in Massachusetts, I know that from my immigration experience, we're talking about RMV employees who are already overburdened. If you go to the RMV, you see it. You know, they deal with a heck of a lot there. Nobody goes to the RMV and says, boy, that was a piece of cake. Or, gee, that was easy and efficient. It's hard. And I'm not picking on Massachusetts. That's true across the country. And it has been our whole lives. And then now to say to your, your RMV employee, who work, they work very hard, say to them, hey, you are now going to have to be able to tell a, an identity document or a birth certificate from one of 200 plus countries and use that to issue an identity document I think the auditor will really need to look into that process to see how is this being done? How are people being um, treated fairly when they go to the RMV? This is also a pro-immigrant matter because once you get that ID, the people who have them should feel confident that it's going to be a reliable document for them going forward and not brought into question because down the road, people determined there was a heck of a lot of fraud. So. There's a lot of issues related to the driver's license. One other one that comes to mind is, I read in the outline that the RMV employees will not be allowed to ask people their citizenship. Okay, but they will also um, give these IDs and register people to vote who wish to vote. So if you can't ask someone's citizenship, how are you ensuring that, um, that their, their voter registration is done properly? So these are the things that the auditor rightfully should look at to make sure the process is being, in, being done in compliance with the law and in the best interest of everybody involved, all of the residents of Massachusetts. So one thing that's come up in, in all of these interviews is uh, the auditor's office is, is pretty substantial, but also notoriously uh, doesn't have enough people to be doing everything in the world that the auditor might like to do. So as you're thinking about your priorities, one of the first things that you said you would do would be to kind of audit the auditor's office. Um, what does that look like in your view? And how do you expect to gauge what your priority areas would be going forward? Well, it's such an important issue. I think before an auditor's office can look at the other 209 state agencies, and say and determine and, and evaluate their performance, we have to know that our own house is in order. And I know there have been audits of the auditor's office in the past, but I don't think that the organizations that have done them have been completely independent. I think we need to bring in a completely independent auditor 
to see why isn't the auditor's office reaching its mandated um, goals, and that is to audit every agency once every three years. So we know that's not happening. Why? And I want to know from day one. So that's why I would have this independent audit to see, all right, how do we get this in order? Is it a funding problem? And if it's a funding problem with, you know, with a, a genuine a collegial spirit, I would approach the legislature and say, you know, we need an improved um, uh, budget structure for this agency. I know that budget hasn't increased outside of small inflationary increases, which haven't kept up with this inflation rate over the last um, few years. The auditor needs its own office to be performing at top level before we can turn to other agencies and point fingers. So that's why I put auditing the auditor's office at the top of my list. But again, I wanna emphasize that that audit needs to be completed by a truly independent organization. Turning to uh, national organizations for state auditors and such, to which I would be a member, to me doesn't seem like an independent audit. You've mentioned specifically that you're committed to auditing the Cannabis Control Commission. And you said in a tweet, uh, quote, careful monitoring of governmental performance is at the heart of the state auditor's mission. Why the Cannabis Control Commission specifically? Well, you might have seen the news that recently uh, it was uh, reported that there was a hack of background investigation data uh, held by the CCC. And um, we also saw that as far as we can determine, the auditor's office has never done an audit of the Cannabis Control Commission. So there's two reasons there. First, because we've had a major problem. Second, because it hasn't been done. But I also um, have a great amount of experience looking at background checks and looking at audits of background checks. They're incredibly important. And there are a few agencies outside of, say, public safety. Um, and this is basically a quasi-public safety agency, I think one could argue, where background checks are so sensitive. This, the Cannabis Control Commission collects really sensitive personal data about people even going as far as you know, patients who have medical marijuana cards, that's medical information about people. The idea that that information could be compromised, I think it was, I might get the number wrong, but I think it was 164,000 background checks in total that were uh, compromised. This is unacceptable. Um, I have a keen awareness of this because I've done it for so long, I've managed and inspected background check systems. So that was quite alarming to me. I think it's high time that the Cannabis Control Commission is audited. And one thing that you mentioned previously, of course, is the interaction between the auditor's office and the legislative branch here. Uh, both of these have oversight roles and and are often engaged in somewhat parallel efforts, even though they both have different briefs. So how are you thinking about the auditor's role as an advocacy organization and interacting with the legislative uh, obligations on those same fronts? Well, I think um, where there's a difference, uh, both philosophically and statutorily, would be in terms of the daylight that can be um, blasted onto the information that's gathered. As we know, the legislature is exempt from public records laws. I have been a longtime proponent of transparency at the government level. And I think the auditor's office is a great place to implement that. So, for instance, um, if you go to the auditor's website now, you can read all of the audits they've done. They're 15, 20 page long. Um, even in this crowd, I would be surprised if, if you've read many or if you've tried to read many. And I don't blame you. Now, 
that's not because they're not good quality. I think the people that do the work at the auditor's office work really hard and they produce a nice product, but the public doesn't read them. They should be produced, they should be available, but the auditor's office should have a, a, a database that the public can access where if you're interacting with the RMV and you wanna see what the results of the last audit were, and you can look really quickly and see what the problems were. And let me add to that, you can see what follow-up the auditor's office provided on those findings, um, because I don't, I don't know that that's happening. Um, I think that would be a great asset for people in terms of transparency. It would be a stark difference from the way the legislature operates. I mean, the legislature audits itself, and those audits are exempt from public records. Um, that would be uh, the yin and the yang of the way the um, the uh, auditor's office would work under an Amari, uh, Amari administration, if you will. Um, I will make that my, my guiding light to have a transparent agency that is useful to the public. So you uh, just got Charlie Baker's endorsement. He sent out a fundraising letter recently for you. Um, he for pretty much his entire time in office has been at pretty sharp odds with a good portion, if not most of the Massachusetts Republican Party. So how do you, you're running as Republican, how do you think about your own relationship to the Massachusetts Republican Party? Uh, you know, th this race, one of the things I decided when I decided to get into this race was to commit myself to just focusing on my own race. It is so easy to get distracted by the, the quarrels that uh, we all read about we all see on Twitter, um, we all hear on the radio. It's no secret. Um, it's also no secret that I'm a great proponent and admirer of the governor. I don't hide that. I'm incredibly honored and frankly energized to get his endorsement this week. I think it would be uh, detrimental to my aspirations here to focus on how I, would how, I, how I handle these issues that are happening with the party, rather than just focusing on the, focusing on the fact that I want to be this independent auditor for the Commonwealth, a person who is placing people and professionalism above politics. That's how I am now. And that's how I will be as auditor. All right. Well, we have to leave it there. So candidate for state auditor and many time guests of the horse race, Anthony Amore, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And that brings us on to our final segment here, because as you might have heard, we're a little bit stressed out in general. We talked about that at length as far as a baseline level of stress here in Massachusetts. But our Pony Express for you this week considers what would happen if an extremely stressful situation were to occur, which might be a grizzly bear just showing up in front of you and, I don't know, demanding that you fight it? Why are we talking about this, Steve? <laughs> Well, there was another deeply scientific, actually, this one was scientific, deeply meaningful poll that the company YouGov conducted where they basically asked the question, which of the following animals, if any, do you think you could beat in a fight if you were unarmed? And it's, you know, it includes everything from grizzly bears, which bizarrely 6% of Americans seem to think that they could take lions at 8%. And then it goes through elephants, crocodiles, geese chimpanzees, everything down to rats and house cats with the percent in each case of who you think would win you or the other animal. I am just extremely concerned that only 72% of people think that they could beat a rat in a fight. I mean, are we talking like, like, I don't like the rats in Alston. 
I don't like them at all like they used to be by my old apartment but like I could take one in a fight like who are the other part of these people who don't think they can take a rat in a fight I mean did you watch those videos of like the north end outdoor dining like the aftermath <laughs> it's like the, it's like the rat the rat it has friends that's the thing you really need to be need to be worried about but this isn't asking if the rat has like backup. This is just this is this just is one rat, right? Like are people Prize overthinking this? I think it's gotta depend on where they're surveying people. Like the New York rats are mean and probably armed. So <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe maybe the like two rats in Utah are too busy skiing to really come at you, but the ones in Alston, they're mean and they hate the college students and they're ready for a fight. So really maybe it just means that like newcomers to boston are that 17 percent who are like i know better right I'm, I'm running if i see a rat i do have to ask you lisa because you're the expert in this particular crew about the next one down which is house cats only 69 percent of americans think they could take, <laughs> think they could take a house cat in a fight 13 percent don't know and 18 percent actually think the house cat would best them so i mean what what I don't even know what the question is. What is that about? I mean, I guess maybe there's like two ways to look at this. One, cats are extremely cute. For those of you on the Zoom, you can see my tiny baby basking in the sun by the window. So maybe it's like you don't want to take a cat. They also have claws. Like I just had to trim her nails. Like, I don't know. Like it, <laughs> no one wants to be the person that kicks a cat. I mean. I, maybe that's it. That could be. I, I have questions about why this poll only accounts for medium-sized dogs and large dogs. Is it just the understanding that, you know, chihuahuas are right up there with grizzly bears? Zero percent of people <laughs> thought they could take them. Yeah, like, that must be tiny it. dogs are just, like, they're yippy. And, like, I- I'm not the world's biggest dog person, but, like, they, they're <laughs> clearly. But, like, they just, I, w- I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I have so many questions about the mechanics of this, too. 30% of people here think they can fight and beat an eagle in unarmed combat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that would look like. That's that's a very good I question. Just, is that standing there with like a tennis racket? No, you can't. You're unarmed. Standing there swatting at it as it swoops out of the sky. I just, again, we have to put this in context of the stress pole here. Because maybe the more stressed areas are also the ones where they're being forced to just bat away attacking eagles constantly. We did notice with some objection that falcons were not included and um, horses also not included. Uh, But we want to know which of these animals you, dear horse race listeners, are confident that you could take in a fight. If you had to square up with a goose, a grizzly bear, a kangaroo, a rat, or any of the other items listed on this chart, which we'll link to in the show notes, how do you peg your chances of walking out of there with a victory? Since most of you are listening from Massachusetts, this will help us get a look at our state's level of hubris when it comes to beating dangerous animals in a fight, which is the data we need and, frankly, the data you all deserve. I absolutely cannot wait to hear everyone's responses to this, but that is all the time that we have for today. I'm Lisa Kaczynski here with Jennifer Smith and Steve Kazella. I have to go run and watch a legislative hearing. So don't forget to give us a review wherever you're hearing us now. Subscribe to my Massachusetts Politico playbook in your inbox every weekday morning and ping the Mass Inc. polling group for polls. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>